For others, you're just like, oh, technology. Thank you, Gabe, for making me feel dumb this morning. <laughs> you're welcome. So this week's Torah portion is called Kitavo, and it means when you have come in, when you have come. Um, and it starts in Deuteronomy chapter 26, and it goes to Deuteronomy chapter 29. We are winding down. We're in the 50th Torah portion of 54. So we're journeying through and almost nearing the end. And I just want to take this moment and make a PSA that when we wrap up this year's Torah cycle, um, I am going to begin teaching on the book of Acts and going through all 28 chapters of the book of Acts. We might cover about two chapters a week. And we're going to go through the history and, you know, social aspects of what's going on in the land of Israel at the time. We're going to go through the Roman occupation, the Roman army. If you love military history or biblical history, then you're probably going to like this. If you don't, if you don't, then you're not going to like it. I'm sorry. Hang in there. But hey, you can you can uh, read the Torah portions throughout the week, which will I will be doing as well. I'm still going to be following the Torah cycle and reading them throughout the week and studying them, listening to teachings on them. And all of our Four years worth of Torah portion teachings are available on the web that you can listen to. They're there for you. Also, I ordered about 200 Torah portion cards, and they're right over there next to the Sadaka box. You can grab one of those and put them in your Bible for next year and just have, and you can follow through the Torah calendar that way. But just so you know, and also uh, leading up to the book of Acts, some of you aren't aware of this yet, but if you just download the schedule you want, we're going to be studying through the book of Mark through Sukkot. And you're going to have, there's going to be a variety of teachers teaching on different uh, chapters in the book of Mark. Because I figured, you know, it'd be good for us to get really dig into one of the Gospels, one of the four Gospels, before we get into the book of Acts. And Mark is the oldest of the Gospels, and it's the shortest of the Gospels. So I figured, you know, this would give us a good crash course and refresher on the Gospel of Mark, and then we go into the book of Acts. Make sense? So it kind of goes in chronological order. So through Sukkot, we're going to be studying Mark. And then we'll get into Acts after Sukkot here on Shabbat. I'll be studying through Acts, okay? All right. But this week's Torah portion is Kitavo. And last year I did a teaching. I'm curious to see who remembers. I did a teaching on how do we remember. I went into the psychology of remembrance. Now, I showed a bunch of photos. And then, no, no, I didn't do it that way. I showed a date. And it was like February 26, 1992, or something like that. And I was like, who remembers what happened on that date? Nobody would remember. And then I showed a photo of what happened on that date, and everyone immediately was like, oh, that was Waco, Texas. Right? Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that photo triggered the memory. Seeing the visual components of it triggered the memory. We talked about how um, – we talked about the cone of experience and how educators – they break down how, how well you retain information. And you guys, when you walk out of this room today, you'll only remember about 5% of what I say. But it doubles if you can see what I say. And then it doubles again if you can talk about what I say. And it just keeps going on from there. If you can experience what I say with other people, then it doubles again. It's just, it keeps going. If you can teach what I say to someone else, then you have mastered the subject level. And that's the highest level of learning and retention of information. But educators and educate, educational psychologists geek out over that stuff. But my job is to educate you on the Torah. Your job is to educate your families on the Torah and the Word of God. So it's important you know how to educate as well. You're all educators in this room, especially if you have children. But that, I, I talk about that in last week's or last year's um, teaching. But turn with me to Deuteronomy 26. I'm going to read a little bit. Deuteronomy 26. No, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. 27. Deuteronomy 27 is where we're going to pick up. Deuteronomy 27. Then Moshe and all the leaders of Israel gave orders to the people. They said, observe all the mitzvot that I'm giving you today. When you cross the Yarden to the land Adonai your God is giving you, you are to set up large stones and put plaster on them. And after crossing over, write this Torah on them, every word, so that you can enter the land Adonai your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, 
as Adonai, the God of your ancestors, promised you. When you have crossed the Yarden, and you are to set up these stones, as I'm ordering you today, on Mount Eval, and put plaster on them. And there you are to erect an altar to Adonai, your God, an altar made of stones. You're not to use any iron tool on them, but you are to build the altar of Adonai, your God, with uncut stones. And you are to offer burnt offerings to it, on it to Adonai, your God. Also, you are to sacrifice peace offerings, eat there, and be joyful in the presence of Adonai, your God. You are to write on the stones all the words of this Torah very clearly. Next, Moshe and the Kohanim, who are Leviim, they spoke to all Yisrael. They said, be quiet and listen to, listen, Yisrael. Uh, Marvin likes to say, takshivli. Yeah. Today you will today you have become the people of Adonai your God. Therefore, you are to listen to what Adonai your God says and obey his mitzvot and laws, which I am giving you today. And that same day Moshe commissioned the people as follows. He said, These are the ones who are to stand at Mount Gerizim and bless the people after you have crossed the Arden. Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar, Yosef, Benjamin. While these are to stand on Mount Eval for the curse. Reuven, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levayim, speaking loudly, will proclaim to every man of Israel the following. A curse on anyone who makes a carved or metal image, something that Adonai detests, the handiwork of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. All the people are to respond by saying, Amen, which means may it be so. A curse on anyone who dishonors his father or mother. And all the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who moves his neighbor's boundary marker. And all the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who causes a blind person to lose his way on the road. And all the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who interferes with justice for the foreigner, the orphan, or the widow. And all the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who has sexual relations with his father's wife because he has violated his father's rights. And all the people are to respond, Amen. A curse on anyone who has sexual relations with any kind of animal. And all the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who has sexual relations with his sister, no matter whether she is a daughter of his father or his mother. And all the people are to respond, Amen. A curse on anyone who has sexual relations with his mother-in-law. And all the people are to respond, Amen. A curse on anyone who secretly attacks his fellow member of the community. And all the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. All the people are to respond, Amen. A curse on anyone who does not confirm the words of the Torah by putting them into practice. And all the people respond, Amen. May it be so. So you got to remember in the ancient Near Eastern world that these would be revolutionary, these concepts of having divine law. All right? You could have common law, like the Code of Hammurabi, for instance, is common law, or what, what our founders of our nation called natural law. This is divine law. This is coming from a higher power, an existential power. The creator is saying, this is right, this is wrong. And this would have been very um, revolutionary, some of these concepts here, for the people of Israel. Very good concepts, concepts that elevate them. Um, to a place of holiness, right? That all the nations will be drawn to the God of Israel because of this. But I want to zoom in on verse 17. A curse on anyone who moves his neighbor's boundary marker. Um, I think there's supposed to be a picture there. Oh, there it is. I want to play this quick video before we get going here. This is a wild story. New from Orlando, there are big questions tonight about what is going to happen to this house in Wakefield Park now that a boundary dispute has reached a whole new level. Check out this new fence. It splits a pool in two. Channel 9, Shannon Butler is live there in downtown Orlando. It's just south of downtown. And Shannon, this fence has neighbors scratching their heads and wondering what will happen next year. Yeah, if you walk down this street here in Wayview Park, it looks normal, right? There's a house on this lot. There's no house on this lot. But if you look behind the bushes here, you can see the guy without a house has put a fence on the guy with the house, making it clear where the property lines stand. Now everybody is asking, what's this guy do now? This home along Harding Street sat vacant for years, all because of a boundary dispute. The MLS listing says, quote, the pool and the garage are partially on the adjacent parcel and not included in this sale. Huh? 
It's such a mess that realtors don't even want to touch it. This realtor posting about it saying, quote, my job as a realtor is to help people buy and sell property. Sometimes my job is to help people not to buy. So the house was just sold at an auction. Now what was a dispute has been taken one step further. The owner of this lot seemed to have put up a fence right through the pool of the other guy's lot, splitting the garage and that pool in half. That's where we stand now. We have a brand new owner of this house, and this is how they choose to make their statement to the new owner. Lisa Stonyers is a realtor and has lived across from the two properties for years. The history is long and sordid, but the easiest way to explain it is that both lots were owned by the same person, a house on each. He then sold them to the new owner, who then cleared the lots to build one big house. But that owner went into foreclosure and the lots were sold to two different people. So now this house is over the property line of the other lot. In the end, Skanier says this could have all it's kind of a mess, isn't it? It's funny how us humans, we like to uh, we like to pick a piece of the earth and say, this is ours right here. Let's put some kind of demarcation around it to tell other people that this is mine. As if you could really like truly own the earth, right? And it, yeah, you got a question? I like the way the Native Americans thought on that. Mm -hmm. Their thought was that you can't own the earth. The earth is God's and it belongs to him. Yeah. You don't own the earth. Yeah, it's, it's interesting it's an interesting concept well what's interesting is um deuteronomy 19 14 says you shall not move your neighbor's landmark which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land the lord your god has given you possess so yeah um that's it's a good it seems like a good concept god has actually granted land to the people of israel this is my earth i've created these people get this portion of the land he has given them to them, and they can own it. They can, they can, they can dwell on it. And then Deuteronomy twenty-seven seventeen. Actually, anyone who would do so would be cursed to move the stone like that. And God categorizes these kinds of infractions with idolatry in twenty-seven fifteen, with incest and bestiality, with murder and bribery. What were these landmarks that they, they would be so important? So, in other words, they're like really grievous sins, is what he's saying. Here is a boundary stone of what it would look like in the, maybe the first century. This is called the Gezer Stone, found in the ancient city of Gezer in southern Israel. And on it are some Hebrew inscriptions, which I can't read because this is like, uh, yeah, I know that this is a mem, and that's probably a sauna, but it, this is a race here. But other than that, I can't really read it. But it, it, it says, archaeologists can't read this, and it says something like, so-and-so owns this. It's a boundary marker, and that's what it would have looked like. So that stone was already just sitting there, and he took and etched his name into that stone. That's, that's kind of the, the, the picture that we're supposed to see here. This is in um, southern Bethlehem. Uh, this is a field. This is the region where Ruth would have gleaned the fields. And she knew where Boaz's field was, and she knew where to go. But this is where they, you, know, they, you see these lines of stones here. These are still there. This is a modern photo. But these date back for thousands of years. All these, um, you guys probably have seen this. You're driving down the countryside, especially in some of these older states. Like if you go up to Tennessee or North Georgia, you might see, uh, you know, like an old picket fence or like a stone wall. You know, um, there was uh, one year we went to Revive. I think it was two or three years back, and it was at a hotel in Franklin, Tennessee. And in the middle of the parking lot, of the hotel, there was a, a stone fence with trees all around it. And there was a cemetery in the middle of the parking lot in the middle of this hotel conference center. It was really fascinating. They used all these stones to go around. Anyways, this is an ancient Mesopotamian Kaduru. It describes the purchase of a land parcel with an elaborate warning and curse on anyone who were to move that. So the ancient Babylonians and Mesopotamians, they did the same thing. They had stones that would demarcate whose property is whose. Um, this is one eye on earth over on Selma Street um, earlier this week. You guys didn't think it was as funny as I thought. Okay, this, <laughs> this is, no, I didn't move it. I just, I found it. It was behind some bushes. This is one, um, this is a geological survey. These are called benchmark, benchmarks. And uh, you'll find them sometimes uh, like in national forests or you'll find them uh, places of high elevation. Um, this one was set in 1940. A lot of times the CCC did these in the 30s when they were working the uh, conservation and stuff. So. 
Anyways, there's, there's some national parks where people will steal these and they'll take them as souvenirs. So they actually, some, uh, some national parks, like we went to Mammoth Cave National Park uh, a couple weeks back and they actually have these for sale in the national park. You can buy them. Because I don't know if they're fed up with people trying to steal them or what. But yeah, good question. Yeah, you know where Florala is. Yes. Out from Florala, you take a little road off the side. I think it's uh, 341. Hmm. It's off to as you're going in there. It's off to your left, and you'll get. It'll take you into Florida, and there'll be a little park that says the highest point in Florida. You got a little. Oh, okay. There. Interesting. And each state line has those too. Yeah, each state line has one. Yeah, yeah. So here is uh, Karen will like this one. This is a town in Vermont where it's a little tiny quaint town. There's a road and actually the border between the US and Canada cuts the town in half. And uh, yeah. And there was a small uptick in crime on the Canadian side. Go figure. And they figured it's coming from the American side. So they put these flower pots across the road to keep the Americans from coming over and driving their car. You can still walk through between the pots. But you know they figured the crime is coming from people who are driving from the U.S., I mean, not like, walking. Yeah, it's great American repellent. So, anyways, hostilities up on the northern border are definitely increasing. I would say it could be a good opportunity to just go ahead and invade and settle that once and for all. <laughs> yeah, just move those flower paths out of the way and drive some some Abrams up through there. But anyways, um, you know, there's other places in the Bible where it talks about not moving boundary stones. Job 24.2, Job decries those who would remove the landmarks, and he condemns them as people who steal cattle. Then um, Hosea declares God's anger against Judah's greed, comparing them to those who move landmarks. Proverbs 22.28 says, don't move ancient landmarks that your father have said. Do not move ancient landmarks, Proverbs 23.10 says. Proverbs 15.23, um, you, you are, by doing so, you're changing the inheritance of the disadvantage. All right, and you know, in uh, Uganda, they take um, fig trees and they plant them at the corner of their property. And everyone knows that, that from that fig tree over, that's my land. Um, it's, a, it's another traditional way of marking boundaries. But these landmarks, identify one's inheritance, the scope of their inheritance, okay? And implied fulfillment of the Lord's promise to his people. Thus, moving the boundary stones changes the scope of that inheritance, and it, and it changes, um, i got to repeat sentence in there, it, it reduces their likelihood of survival in the land, in other words, because land equals survival. How so? Because you can grow stuff in land. When um, we went to the slums of Kampala in June, it was like, man, if all these people could just have one acre of land out in the countryside somewhere, they all know how to grow food. They all grew up doing that. They can, it's so easy to do that here. The, fer the soil is so fertile. If all these people could just up and move and, and live on one acre, they would be fed. They could take care of themselves. But this land is connected to survival and sustenance because you can grow stuff on land. So land equals sustenance. So when you change the boundary of someone's land, think about that, you're actually infringing on their survivability. You're actually saying, I'm going to survive more and grow more and make more money and eat more and you're going to do all that but less. See, see the, the scope of that, how important that is? And do that over multiple, multiple generations. What does that do? It really muddies the water to who owns what land. Mark Twain says, buy land, because they don't make it anymore. It's very true. Well, here are the boundary markers for the 12 tribes of Israel. And then even within these 12 tribal lands, you had family clan lands. You knew each family, they divided, they subdivided these up and knew the, the, you know, this family, the Miller family has this, the Rutledge family has this over here. We're all part of the tribe of, of Judah, but we know, you know, you get the idea there, right? Sadly, however, the borders of the land of Israel have been changed throughout the history of the Christian church. You think, how so? 
It's called replacement theology and supersessionism. We've taken the land of Israel, the people of Israel, and we have moved their ancient boundary stones. I'm going to explain. Replacement theology says that the church is now Abraham's spiritual seed, and it has replaced the nation of Israel in that it has transcended and fulfilled the terms of the covenant given to Israel, which covenant Israel had lost because of disobedience. How many of you have heard that before? That the church has replaced Israel. There was plan A, it was Israel. And for some reason, God worked with this people and he struggled with them. But they just kind of, just like, you know what? Fine, I'm done with you. I'm going to go with plan B. Is that biblical though? Here, this Lorraine Beck Boatner writes... It may seem harsh to say that God is done with the Jews, but the fact of the matter is that he is through with them as a unified national group having anything more to do with the evangelization of the world. That mission has been taken from them and given to the church. And he was a good Presbyterian. And the Presbyterian church is one of the major adherents to replacement theology. Which, yeah, the, the official tenets of the Presbyterian Church holds to replacement theology. Not every Presbyterian holds to replacement theology. But this is one of the big problems I have with Calvinism and the Reformed theology is that it allegorizes verses of the Bible that talk about the elect, Israel, the elect, and then puts them on the church and says that the church is the elect and that they're predestined to be saved and all this stuff. That's... It's, it's misinterpreting scripture, and it's interpreting scripture and the writings of Paul, especially through the lens of replacement theology, and it's dangerous. Oregon says he lived in 185 to 254. He espoused a form of supersessionism or replacement theology. And he said, and we say with confidence that they, the Jews, will never be restored to their former condition, for they committed a crime of the most unhallowed kind. Uh, Latentius, who lived in 300 to 313, uh, or he said this around that date, also asserted that the Jews were abandoned by God. He said, for unless they, the Jews, did this, uh, unless they repent and laying aside their vanities, return to their God, it would come to pass that he would change his covenant, that is, bestow the inheritance of eternal life upon foreign nations and collect to himself a more faithful people out of those who were aliens by birth. On account of these impieties of theirs, he has cast them off forever. These, are, these guys are like church fathers. These are not like fringy, fringy dudes. They are church fathers that are studied and read and quoted all throughout seminaries in the United States of America and the world, really. Here, Luther, another one, he advocated the expulsion of Jews from Germany, as well as the destruction of their synagogues and religious books. In his pamphlet written in 1543 on the Jews and their lies, he wrote, first, their synagogue should be set on fire. This is Martin Luther, father of the Protestant Reformation. They should be set on fire, and whatever is left to be buried in the dirt so that no one may be able to see a stone or a cinder from it. Jewish prayer books, which we have, right, Sidurs, they should be destroyed. Then the Jewish people should be dealt with, their homes smashed and destroyed. Jews should be banned from the roads and the markets, should be drafted into forced labor and made to earn their bread by the sweat of their noses. They live by evil and plunder. They are wicked beasts that ought to be driven out like mad dogs. In the last resort, they should be kicked out for all time. Sound familiar? It sounds like Mein Kampf, doesn't it? Here is Martin Luther again. Listen. Jew, are you aware that Jerusalem and your sovereignty together with your temple and priesthood have been destroyed for 1,460 years? For such ruthless wrath of God is sufficient evidence that they are assuredly have erred and gone astray. Therefore, this work of wrath is proof that the Jews, surely rejected by God, are no longer his people, and neither is he any longer their God. Whoa. Luther was a jerk. I mean, don't get me wrong, him bucking and 
distancing himself from some of the some of the awful stuff going on in the Roman Catholic Church was a good thing. But towards the end of his life, man, he got a lot of stuff wrong, didn't he? And that's hard stuff to listen to. But the predominant tenets of replacement theology say this. Number one, Israel, the Jewish people in the land, has been replaced by the Christian church in the purposes of God, or more precisely, the church, is the historic continuation of Israel to the exclusion of the former. In other words, the, the church now can be called Israel, but it's not really Israel, it's more like an allegory. Here, the replacement theology says the Jewish people are no longer a chosen people. In fact, they are no different from any other group, such as the English, Spanish, Chinese, or Egyptians. The third thing supersessionism or replacement theology teaches, since Pentecost of Acts 2, the term Israel as found in the Bible now refers to the church. Fourth point, the promises, covenants, and blessings ascribed to Israel in the Bible have been taken away from the Jews and given to the church, which has superseded them. However, the Jews are subject to the curses found in the Bible as a result of the rejection of the Messiah. Does it sound familiar? Maybe, maybe you've heard something along those lines growing up. Here's why replacement theology is really dangerous. Why we wholesale reject replacement theology and supersessionism. It is unbiblical. And it forces a twisted and spiritualized interpretation onto huge chunks of the Bible. Hundreds of passages are affected. It cannot explain the continued existence of the Jewish people, nor the miraculous rebirth of the state of Israel in 1948. So check this out. It's really easy to believe in replacement theology in, let's say, 1947. And 1948 happens, and you're like, oh, wait a second. Uh-oh. I might have to rethink my theology a little bit, right? Thirdly, throughout history, it has paved the way for Christians, and I put it in quotes there, Christians in quotes, to engage in jerkish, jerkish anti-Semitic behavior. Because if you believe in replacement theology, Jews who still do Jewish things, they're lost, they're estranged from God, Let's, that gives us license to be jerks to them. No. Cut it out. It doesn't. I want to contrast replacement theology to scripture. I'm going to prove to you why it's unscriptural from the Bible. Can I do that? Yes. Now I'm going to give some of these verses out here. Exodus 4.22, I'm going to give to Jeremy. Psalm 135.4. Do one of you three ladies over there have a Bible that you can turn to? Psalm 135.4. Psalm Marvin, can you go to 2 Samuel? 2 Samuel. Yeah, it's right there. Okay, and then let me get Miss Helen to go to Jeremiah 31. Verses 23 to 40. Verses 23 to 40. So I'm just going to prove to you from the Bible why replacement theology is unbiblical. What do we need to prove that replacement theology is? What would you be looking for to prove that it's false? What do you think? What? Bible. A Bible? Yeah, but I mean, like, what would the Bible have to say to prove replacement theology wrong? That, yeah, I see your hand. Yeah, so there's like, there, there is this, Paul talks about wanting all his brethren to be saved, right? So in other words, God's not done with them. He wants them to be saved. What else would you have to see, Suzanne? That his covenants are eternal. That his covenants with who are eternal? Jewish people are eternal. So the Bible says that anywhere. Replacement theology is bunk, right? What else would you have to see? I would just see one word, and that's the word forever. Forever, yeah. Yeah, Patrick. That he would never forsake his people Israel. So if the Bible says that he will never forsake Israel, but replacement theology says that he did, then you're turning God into a liar, right? So let's look for that kind of language and see if it's there. Yeah, Jackie. Yeah. So if we see any theme in the prophets talking about restoring the people back to their land, the nations going to the land, the king reigning and ruling from that land, 
then yeah, that, then replacement theology is bunk, right? All right, who has the first one? Exodus 4, 22. You got it, Jeremy? Then you are to tell Pharaoh, Adonai says, Israel is my firstborn son. So you're to tell Pharaoh, who is my firstborn son? Israel is. So it's interesting. Did God abandon his own firstborn son, the nation of the people of Israel? That's what replacement theology says. They cut them off and he's no longer come with them. Or he's no longer using them. Who does Psalm 135? You got it, Hannah? Just read it nice and loud. He chose Israel as his own unique treasure. You hear that kind of language? That doesn't sound like replacement theology to me. That sounds the opposite. Who has 2 Samuel 7.23? You got it, Marvin? I got it. And, and who is like and who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on earth whom God wants to redeem for himself as a people to make for himself and to do for you? For yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt the nations and their gods for you have made your people Israel your very own people forever and you Lord have become their God wait you have made Israel your people for how long forever 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 so does forever mean until Jesus comes and dies and resurrects no. Forever is forever. You, you can try to split that word. I've seen people take the Hebrew word olam and they just say, oh, it just means this age or something like that. It's, it's, it's craziness. But forever means forever. Now, here's the other issue I take with replacement theology. If you ascribe to replacement theology and you believe that now God is working through the church, now we're the chosen vehicle of salvation, then who's to say God won't divorce you and cut you off? It's a very fickle God. That's not the God of the Bible. Who has the next verse? Jeremiah 31. You got that, Miss Helen? Verses 23 to 40. Is his name. 
If these laws leave my presence in Adonai, then the offspring of Israel will stop being a nation in my presence forever. This is what Adonai says. If the sky above can be measured and the foundation of the earth be fastened, then I will reject all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, says Adonai. Look, the days are coming, says Adonai, where the city will, rebuild, will be rebuilt for Adonai from the tower of Hanumel to the corner gate. The measuring line will be stretched straight to Gerais Hill and turned to go up. The whole valley of corpses and ashes, including all the fields as far as Vedakadron, and on the corner of the house gate to the east, will be separated out for Adonai. It will never be uprooted or destroyed again. So how frequently will it be uprooted and destroyed again? Never. And then he said, if you can measure the skies, the heavens, then I will abandon my people. Until the sun, the moon, and the stars disappear, I will not forsake the house of Jacob. So replacement theology, probably the biggest issue I have with that, is it turns the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, into a fickle liar. And it is satanic in its nature, in its core. Why? Because God wants to make God out to be, or Satan wants to make God out to be a liar. And if he can accomplish that, he's won. Deuteronomy 27, 17. Let's go back to that original verse. Cursed is anyone who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. So if we change the scope of the inheritance, especially the spiritual chosenness and electness of the people of Israel, if we change those boundary stones, what does that do to us? What does that bring on us? A curse. God forbid I don't want to do that. I want to give you a homework assignment. Read Romans 11 some point today when you go home. Read Romans 11. Paul says, in that case, I say, isn't it that God has repudiated his people? Heaven forbid he hasn't. So the very denominations that embrace replacement theology are the same ones waning in numbers and support. The same ones that are splitting up over LGBT issues that are confronting them. The same denominations are confused over the issue of women clergy and are thus becoming impotent in their ability to be effective for the kingdom. These guys are all just in a tizzy. Why? Because I believe they're doing what this guy is doing right here. They're severing themselves from the root of the tree. And now they're all confused and divided. That to me, if I could say frankly, is curse. That's what cursing does to you. Is it, is it blinds you. It allows you to wander through not knowing where to go or what to do or what to believe. I don't want to be guilty of that. I reject replacement theology. And I want to leave those boundary stones exactly where he put them. And honor the people to whom they belong. There's a great book on this I read years ago on an airplane called Boundary Stones, Divine Parameters for Faith and Life. Check it out if you if you like to read. It's by Aaron Eby, um, published by First Street Design in uh, 2008. Like you can buy one for $2.99. Check that out if you uh, after Shabbat. And here's the final verse I want to read, Malachi 3.6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Isn't that powerful? So let's be people who don't consume them who don't cut them off from the promises and the covenants. If you ever hear language like, well, we're in a church age now, there was an Israel age or the church age, uh-uh, that's crypto language for replacement theology. There's an Israel age, there always has been, there always will be, and we get to pull up a, a chair to that table. We get to be grafted into that family. Amen. We get to be adopted sons and daughters of the commonwealth of Israel. If you don't believe me, read Romans 11 and read Ephesians chapter 2. Man, how gracious is our God. Amen. Right? How merciful is our God to people who are not part of the natural tree. With that, we're going to do Kitabo Q&A. If you have a comment or a question 
about what I taught on about this week's Torah portion. This is your opportunity. Yeah, Brian. takes a good deal of courage to be the first person. So thank you, Ryan. Anybody else? It's quiet today. Yeah, Suzanne. sin that we can commit is a form of theft and changing someone's boundary stones or survey markers or privacy fence or whatever that's theft but every other sin is a form of theft as well yes say to, yeah, there was a famous pastor recently, a couple years back, said to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Um, It's easy to say that when you have a part of your Bible called the New Testament, but if you went to any Christian in the first, second, third century and said, hey, you need to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament, first of all, they would say, what is the Old Testament? (laughs) Right? Because they didn't have an Old Testament. They had the scriptures. They didn't have a part of the Bible called the New Testament. So let's say, let's pretend for a second they believed that that was the Old Testament which would have been anachronistic to even say, then they would be like, okay, well then what then is our scriptures? Because at that point, there may have been copies of the gospels floating through their assemblies. There may have been copies of Paul's letters floating through their assemblies. So if we were a a synagogue, let's say in the city of Corinth in the first century, and someone, a messenger brought in the, the gospel of Mark, we would find the person with the best handwriting in here, Mr. Lamb, and we would say, can you copy as this as many times as you can while you're here as a messenger? We would feed the messenger, give him lodging, and then send him on to the next assembly, right? And then we would have a copy of Mark. And the same thing with any Paul's letters who made it into our assembly. Like That's how they began to accumulate copies of the New Testament. But that took, that process took 150, 200 years to where it became codified in a part of our Bible that is called the New Testament. Until then, in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and worthy of proof. He's talking about the Old Testament. So, yeah, I believe when you when you say, sever yourself from the Old Testament, there's no moral injunctions that we can find in the Old Testament that we should abide by. I believe you're doing what that guy in that picture did, and he's sawing the branch off, and that's it's very dangerous. But yeah, I see uh, back there, and then we'll go to my mom. So if we are to provoke the Jews to jealousy, that would mean to make them desire what we have. Mm-hmm. If that's what we've got as a fickle God lies, mm-hmm. why would they believe our Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So then we become a stumbling block to them mm-hmm. and their relationship with God. Yeah, which is another commandment. You don't put stumbling blocks in front of people, right? Right, right. Yeah, it's a sin. Um, oh, I got something. Thank you, though. Uh, yeah, very good point. Uh, and on our mom had a question. When President Trump made that, took that step to literally physically move an embassy to show Jerusalem mm-hmm. and the capital of Israel, it sort of reinstated a boundary line. Mm-hmm. That maybe this was a setting of Israel 
it doesn't really make much logical sense or economic sense to make Jerusalem the capital of your nation. If you're, it's kind of like, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Um, she's saying by Trump moving the embassy to Jerusalem, it was uh, kind of like a, a restorative action, um, which I agree with. But I was responding saying <clears throat> that if you think about it, there is no logical reason or good economic reason to make Jerusalem your capital. Just like as much as the state of Florida has Tallahassee as its capital city. Why? You know, that seems so illogical. It's just because that's that's because of how it happened historically is that it became the seat of the government there in Florida, as opposed to it would make more sense to make like Orlando or in Tampa the capital. It's more centrally located to Florida. There's more economy, there's more money, there's more people. But Tallahassee, the small town, relatively small speaking, is the capital. With Jerusalem, it's kind of the same way. There's no natural resources, really, to speak of. The, the economic center of, of Israel is Tel Aviv. But I think in him doing that, and other nations doing that, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital, you're saying, I see the, the, the biblical dynamic of this city being the center of this nation. I'm looking at it as through a biblical worldview that this is the, the, the holy city of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're affirming, you're affirming the, the right to this. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a very bold statement. All right. Any other questions or comments? Great comments. Yeah, Patrick. And you can sneak a little nibble of your bread if you're. Yeah. <laughs> steal your roommate's ice cream and skim it off the surface day by day that it doesn't count towards your diet, but also the owner of the ice cream eventually wouldn't notice. So um, Alexis is like, well, these are kinds of things I should know before committing to marrying you. <laughs> and everyone else is hiding their ice cream when you come over. But what was your, what was your point then? So, you know, we've gotten so far away from where the 
first found the stone was, and now mm-hmm. we kind of miss everything we've been because of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. She's saying she's saying the kind of the church has done the same thing, essentially piggybacking what Patrick said that the Christian church has, has moved the boundaries farther and farther and farther. It's like you've ever seen the caution tape at like a construction site. You know, it's like it's to keep us out of that construction site because there's dangerous stuff happening in there. But it's like if we just see the flexibility of this tape and we walk and we keep walking and we keep walking, it's around our waist and we're walking and walking. Walking, how much farther can we go before that tape just pops, right? And we have, we haven't crossed the boundary. We've just moved it over with our body weight and just kind of changed it, morphed it, manipulated it. And, but eventually, it will give way. Eventually, that tape is going to pop, right? And yeah, we, we can do that same thing with our theology and how we think about God and what we think about God as a way, sometimes even consciously as a way of rationalizing our own sin and getting what we want out of him. So, good point. Greg, I see you're here. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. 